This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 36. Tiger and Bunny, the beginning and the rising. Heroes on the silver screen. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Justin Young. Heyo. William, aka Lord Crab. Hello. And Tim the Otaku Jock. Hello again. And this week we are doing our first ever follow-up episode. We've already looked at Tiger and Bunny and made our feelings known there. And now we are going to look at the two Tiger and Bunny movies. Tiger and Bunny, The Beginning, and Tiger and Bunny, The Rising. But before we go into the episode proper, let's just give a quick recap as to what the show is about. But before we go any further, just to recap what Tiger and Bunny is about. In the distant future, there are human beings who are born with superpowers that are called Nexts, and these people can use their powers either for good, for evil, or can just simply hide them from the public. In this case, our story centers around an elite group of superheroes who are a part of a TV show called Hero TV, a competition among superheroes to earn points to become the King of Heroes, which involves fighting crimes throughout the futuristic American city of Sternbuild. Our story centers around a hero named Kotetsu Kaburagi, who fights crime under the identity of Wild Tiger. He is a man who is kind of down on his luck. He's routinely at the bottom of the standings of Hero TV. His wife is dead, he's been estranged from his daughter, and is just out being a deadbeat dad. After his company closes down, He's paired up with a young, up-and-coming hero named Barnaby Brooks Jr., who takes a different approach to fighting crime than Kotetsu does, and together the two have all sorts of wacky escapades together, as well as dealing with the other competitors on Hero TV. I hope my summary was sufficient for you guys. Did I miss anything? Not pretty that I... much hit it. Yeah, not much that I can remember that, uh, that we overlooked. So, before we go to the movies, what were what has been your thoughts on Tiger and Bunny since we first reviewed it? Has it risen? Has it fallen? Where do you stand on Tiger and Bunny all these years later? I s- still think that Tiger and Bunny, I mean, despite some of the issues that we've talked about in uh, the episode covering it, I still thought it was a good and enjoyable show, and definitely worth watching. I, I honestly, you know, feel as though that it's, you know, maybe one of the one of the more overlooked shows of the 2010s. Maybe just not, uh, maybe just not quite getting the run that it did. But I feel like maybe there's at least a good um, following around the series, and I think that it's about. I won't say it's risen, but it's about stayed the same for me. I still enjoyed it, and actually getting to 
revisit the series here with these movies reminded me a lot of why I enjoyed it the first time around. I pretty much stayed consistent, and um, I actually had a funny story involving this show, because earlier this week, my brother and I watched that, I watched the ever-so-controversial Superman quote-unquote anime, just air-quoted for people listening right here, and as we're watching it, I was wondering, I was thinking of a show that I could compare it to. In short, don't don't watch that show. It's rather mid, very bordering on boring. But, you know, even though I kept thinking of My Hero Academia through it, you know, it, you all know exactly what show that it really uh, felt like a uh, ripoff of? This. Tiger and Bunny. Which, considering Tiger and Bunny's age, is saying something. But also... The original super anime superhero show still remains sharp and apparently influential ten years later. It's very interesting you make that comparison, Justin. My thoughts on Tiger and Bunny have remained the same. I do think that in spite of its faults, in spite of some missteps, in spite of some questionable changes in direction and storytelling... Tiger and Bunny is an enjoyable show thanks to its great visuals, fun cast of characters, and a really good second half. I mean, the Mind Wipe arc is fantastic, and honestly, I wish there was more of that in this show. But by that same merit, I absolutely understand why this show wasn't bigger in America. Because I asked the question in the episode... Why wasn't Tiger and Bunny a bigger hit than it was in America? And watching the two movies, I think I understand why. Because Viz pushed this show hard. Like, even without it being aired on Crunchyroll, it was more of like a Hulu and a Neon Alley, if anyone remembers that Man, streaming that service thing. No even, kidding. Even with all the merchandise and the push, it still didn't take a hold... And I think that reason is because people were expecting it to be more than what it was. Like, they were expecting a more traditional American superhero show. Something in the vein of what DC was doing or the Marvel cartoons of the 90s. The thing with Tiger and Bunny, though, is that it cribs a lot more from Tokusatsu. Namely, the Metal Hero series and Super Sentai. Yeah, I can I can buy that, and, and of course that was also not at a point really where you know you could say that Sentai and Tokusatsu kind of had the more hardcore cult following that it's developed in the last few years. I was going to say that sort of what I was touching on with my intro was that yeah, I remember years ago superheroes weren't as much of a, th a thing as they were now. Uh, look at how big uh, Hero Academia blew up when it came out back in 2016. And looking back on that, I'm almost not surprised that it didn't catch on at first because it's too far ahead of its time, which actually makes it a bit makes me a bit more fond of it because I can almost hear the uh, the 2012 in my head right now. I know I remember exactly what was going on back then, and it was not. The landscape of both anime and Western animation was a whole lot different back then. As my colleague just mentioned with, with uh, Tokusatsu being a 
cult following that it is. There's a whole channel of it on Pluto here right next to me. That was unheard of back then. And um, nowadays, if nowadays incorporating that into a show would actually be it would be pretty fresh right now, right? It would be pretty a fresh and interesting take. Whereas back then, there was a lot of new ground being blazed here. I would argue that I wouldn't say it's ahead of its time. I would say that it didn't really do the whole American superhero thing with a Japanese twist very well. I say it feels more like a tokusatsu show because each week we have a dilemma that our heroes have to deal with. And, you know, I have nothing against Monster of the Week sort of shows. I'm fine with that. I love Monster of the Week animates. It's why I love Mecha and Magical Girl shows. Monster of the Week format can be fun, but if you're trying to make a show that supposedly takes place in America, where the characters have American names or close to American names, that takes so many inspiration from American superheroes, you would expect it that it would be formatted like a comic book or, or one of the many cartoon adaptations of comic books. I don't get that comic book feel from Tiger and Bunny. I think another factor that sort of derailed its momentum here in America was that I don't think Tiger and Bunny was meant to be marketed towards Americans because our hero Kotetsu isn't some, like, hot-blooded teenager or someone with stars in his eyes. He's a man in his mid-30s who's down on his luck. Tiger and Bunny aims more at, like, the 30 and 40-something demographic than it does the 19 to 29 demographic. I mean, I don't think that there's any debate about that. I mean, again, to bring up probably the the best example going at it, I mean, you compare protagonist of this series and you compare the main protagonist from uh, My Hero Academia, it's, it's a night and day. You've got high schoolers on one side and you got... Uh, guys that are pushing middle age on the other. So, I mean, which one do you think is going to is gonna attract the bigger audience? The youngest members of our squad are Paolin Huang, Dragon Kid, and Karina Lyle, Blue Rose, both seem to be around high school age, and Ivan Carolyn, Origami Cyclone, who's college-aged. Everyone else is, like, in their 20s or 30s. And then you've also got guys like, uh, you know, like Rock Bison, who were who seem to be, I think, even uh, even a little bit older than most of the folks there, even older than Kotetsu. And I think the fact that it seemed to be made with an older audience in mind was what turned it off from anime fans who were watching things like Attack on Titan or Tokyo Ghoul. I mean, this was still at a time, I feel like, where the entirety of Western anime fandom was still in a state of flux, like... I think that really the streaming, you know, gold rush had not yet uh, gone into full effect at this point in, in uh, when the series premiered. And really, it it was one of those shows that I think that they were trying to go for. It's like you said, they were trying to go for an older audience thinking that, OK, maybe this is the one that we can do it with. But it just it just turned out it just didn't work out for them like that. It was pushed hard at the beginning of the streaming gold rush and at a time when American superhero movies were entering their boom period. But also, I talked about how it failed to stand out. Would you like to know what else aired in that same season? Go for it. This was the season that gave us Dead Man Wonderland, Nichijo, Steinsgate, Blue Exorcist, and Anohana. 
if you stack up Tiger and Bunny to those five other shows, Tiger and Bunny is perhaps the least of them. Which doesn't mean I think it's bad, it just feels like it's lesser than its competition. It just got, just got buried underneath the competition, that's the thing. And when your competition is that good, I get the feeling that it just got left in the dust both critically and, well not financially, but in terms of viewership here in America. In Japan, it did gangbusters in terms of merch sales and ratings, with some magazine viewers rating it as one of the best anime of all time, at least for that decade, but in America, it just, it was an also-ran, and once My Hero Academia and One Punch Man came out, Tiger and Bunny was just rendered irrelevant. Those two series ate its lunch. Especially first, especially the, the first season of One Punch Man. <laughs> and it's kind of a shame, because... Tiger and Bunny does feel like it's the start of something in Japan in terms of anime trends go, but as the internet likes to say, Tiger and Bunny walked so My Hero Academia could, you say, run. <laughs> I was gonna say that earlier. <laughs> Do you guys have anything else to add as to why I feel Tiger and Bunny kind of missed the boat here in America. Well, I could go ahead and at least say that, yeah, it was at the beginning of the uh, streaming gold rush, uh, but at the same time, you didn't exactly have, I think, the social media infrastructure as well as the streaming infrastructure that, w that we have now, back then, to really push that forward, or at least it didn't seem that way to me from what I can remember. I was going to say that it's hard to describe, but I feel like this is a show. If It could have been big on US TV, but did not. I would, but was definitely not given the chance to succeed, especially looking, looking back on it years later. That's pretty much all I got for right now. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep it strictly movies right here. You know, you brought that up, and all of a sudden I'm remembering, yeah, that was one of the reasons I maybe gave it a pass around that time, was because I I knew, because, you know, when they were bringing back Toonami, I thought for sure that Tiger and Bunny would have been on the shortlist for one of the shows that they would have gotten, but it turns out they didn't go for that. Didn't yeah, they? The like first time I actually ended up seeing it was in, was in uh, the anime club that I was in at the time. And that was that was actually how I first saw it. And I remember seeing it for the first time and going, why didn't this end up on TV? Because it feels like a very TV-ready show, all things considered. Length's perfect. Characters are, are built well. Even the idea of brand tie-ins, while kind of silly now and... Uh, even as someone who watches a lot of racing, I would say that that's aged kind of the worst. Even the brand tie-ins would have made for some good TV, if for no other reason than for people to just pile on the irony and the sarcasm over it. Then again, uh, you mentioned the lack of a social media infrastructure back then. Uh, I think that actually was... The one thing that was another thing that was missing from the time. Nowadays, uh, there are a lot of anime to get 
that get big on something like, say, Twitter or Facebook or uh, TikTok, whereas it's a whole, in pretty much any show that gets, once it gets wind on air, it can sustain itself right into the history books based on that kind of momentum alone. I mean, just look at Attack on Titan or, or a lot of the big shows. Actually, Mushiko Tensei is another one that comes to mind. Um, as an example to how that can be pulled off, that back in 2011, is some, as I like to cite uh, one of my favorite YouTubers, Slapshoes, pointed out, there was no infrastructure like that back then. So a lot of grassroots shows like Tiger and Bunny simply could not get the momentum together to make a bigger step. I was actually thinking that maybe if the show was promoted a little bit differently, uh, differently, like less of a superhero show, more like a traditional Super Sentai, like maybe like here, like here in the U.S., like Power Rangers, for example, then maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it could have gotten a little bit more recognition that way. I don't know if it would have gone. Maybe it could have gone on Toonami, but I can't be certain. I mean, who knows for sure? I mean, who knows at this point? We all know that uh, how difficult it is for them get to get shows on Toonami now, given how Sony has been basically, you know, grabbing them by the you know what's for goodness sakes. My sweet lord, that could be an entire different episode of this show. <laughs> Oh, and hey, Justin, as well, as a fellow Slapshoes fan, uh, always, gla- always glad to find another one. I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say that even if it got on Toonami, even if we had the social media infrastructure in place, I don't think that fans would take kindly to it because of that Monster of the Week format. They would probably just see it as something like, you know... Sailor Moon, but for adults, or, you know, this is just Power Rangers, but with American-style superheroes. They complain that nothing's actually happening in Tiger and Bunny and what have you. Because as we know, most casual anime fans, the kinds whose diet consists of Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen, don't take kindly to Monster of the Week format-type shows. I mean, I think just the bottom line is is that we'll just never know uh, what happens. I mean, Tiger and Bunny's place in history, unfortunately, is kind of set. And especially now that season two is effectively locked in Netflix jail. Well, I think that's all I need to say about that. I mean, on the plus side, at least it was able to get a second season. Ten years exactly. after the fact. And so that brings us to the first Tiger and Bunny movie, Tiger and Bunny, The Beginning, released in 2012, one year after the anime finished airing. This time, though, we have a different director than we did the TV series. The director this time around was Yoshihiro Yoshitani, who directed the original Laughing Salesman TV series, Nurse Witch Komugi-chan, His most well-known work is Shokugeki no Soma, but I get the feeling this guy should have directed Tiger and Bunny instead of I forgot who directed the first season because he was the mastermind behind Better Man, Brigadoon, and Gaugaigar. Oh. (laughs) I think this guy understood the whole superhero thing better than the original staff did, 
We still have Masafumi Nishida on board. He's done a lot of writing in Japanese live action. He was the writer for the manga Tesla Note. And recently he made his directorial debut directing the water polo anime Remain. Yes, water polo gets an anime before ice hockey does. I am disappoint. So there's not much to say about Tiger and Bunny the beginning. It's basically a compilation movie that recaps the first two episodes. And I thought we would just say, well, it's a recap movie. We won't have much to say. But the third act is an original story that was exclusive to this movie. And all I'm thinking of while watching it is, how the hell was this not an actual episode in the show? Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly I with know, that. Right? I enjoyed that third act quite a bit. Maybe it was just, um, you know, like a scrapped idea that they couldn't fit into the TV show at first, and maybe they just tacked it onto this movie. I would sooner watch that episode oh, than the one that here. featured a guy who's <laughs> creeping on Blue Rose. Ah, jeez. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot about that story arc. Sheesh. It was going to invalidate what I was going to say. We do get some new footage from the first two episodes as well including a rather entertaining sequence where we see Kotetsu putting on his superhero outfit in his beat-up car. <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoyed that. that. That feels very just kind of... It feels almost Lupin-esque the way that, that he was trying to do that. No, that actually reminds me of The Incredibles. The teaser well, I wasn't for the, the first Incredibles. person who noticed that. Before we get into the original story, though... Do you think these first two episodes give the viewer a good first impression of the show and what to expect? I was going to say, well, I kind of have to throw it back to all these years ago. I, why am I having flashbacks for 20 for years ago? Whatever. Anyway, so, so I'm, kind, I'm going to have to throw it back years ago when I first saw the show. And to that end, back then... I, this wasn't the movie cut, mind you. This was just, this was literally just watching the first two episodes back to back and praying the internet doesn't crap itself to death in the middle. So, as someone came in completely blind and had to deal with that gap in the middle, I was going to say, well, it's like this. I would use this as a good jumping off point if you got a show. If you're like in a party setting, it's round robin, and you got to show someone the basic setup of the show before you can move on into different arcs, and even the second movie, which I'm going to throw in there, I would actually say yes in that kind of setting. At 90 minutes, it's long enough to get the gist of something, but also it's short enough to go, okay, there's... 20-some-odd, more than that, new episodes left, so we could... So, after this party's over, after I'm going to sober up, I'm going to go plow through the rest. It's enough to sort of get the vibe in there, but it leaves the viewer... I'm going to putting myself in those shoes to sort of go, okay, I watch more. I watch more. That's fine. I may do it on my own time, but I would do it. I mean, I think this movie uh, does... It's pretty much that. I think that the the one thing that I liked about it so much was, especially where it felt like you get 
a better feel, I think, for all of the heroes' personalities, especially once you hit that once you hit the uh, the point of the movie where they're they're doing the uh, the get together at the bar. You get a feel for everyone, I think, a lot better here than I think you did uh, introducing them one at a time in uh, in the TV series. I do like that we get some focus on some of the characters that kind of got the shaft in the TV series. Specifically, Rock Bison, because boy, oh boy, this guy is a total loser! <laughs> oh, man. Like, Kotetsu's failures are more, is mostly due to, like, his own fault or his him just getting unlucky in a situation where he's being overzealous. Rock Bison just sucks! Yeah, they definitely emphasize that a bit more in the... In both of these movies, than than even in the show, should have been a sound effect for the suck button, which is hit continuously. Oh, brother! <laughs> if Rock Bison was a sports team, then he's the Philadelphia Flyers of the heroes. Ooh. Oh, oh, oh! Wait, actually, I got a be- I got a better one. I I got a better one. <laughs> I I don't know if this will work, but I'll let I'll let you be the judge of this one. Rock Bison is the Albany Empire. Nah, 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 nah. That's that. Rock Bison. I know. Probably not. Probably not the best comp, but it just flashed into my head. I figured, just put it out there. I'll one up you on your football analogies. Rock Bison is the New York Jets of superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> he constantly. I'll just butt- pretend I understand. Oh, I'm dead now. He constantly butt-fumbles his way on Hero TV with that big-ass suit that has somehow somehow makes him less mobile than a box lacrosse goalie. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, seriously, with how it's animated, like, that thing must weigh 1,000 pounds. I know, and he, Functional, functionality, not that suit's first uh, first uh, emphasis. Like, he has to be loaded into, like, an artillery cannon in order to fly, and he maneuvers by using the drills on his shoulders, which, don't ask me how that works. I never bothered to think about it. I just, I was just letting it wash over me, like... Yeah, this is stupid. Whatever. I mean, we, we're dealing yeah, the with the only way. Who... He, the only way he would have needed some he, that he would have uh, hit something with that catapult is if someone had played Swords of Revealing Light. That is a deep slap cut reference to him. incoming. This is the. I can't get we referencing this. This is the Delta eighty eight of superhero outfits. <sighs> slap if you're listening to this. I love your video. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, Rock Bison's uh, suit looks better than a Delta 88 Oldsmobile. (laughs) Uh, We've spent so much time on Rock Bison because we get a little extra time with Dragon Kid and she exists too. That's basically like most of the superheroes in in Tiger Bunny. They just exist. Yeah, yeah, that was always what was my... You know, my biggest criticism of the of the series is just that, like, yes, it's Tiger and Bunny, and so of course Barnaby and and Kotetsu are going to get the most are going to get the lion's share of the focus. But it really felt like that 
outside of Karina, the entire supporting cast was just uh, undercooked. Like, even when they got an, a one-off episode focusing on them, it barely matters at the end because it none of the like none of the episodes that focus on them ever get like referenced again after uh, afterwards. I'm actually gonna go one step far- further and say it doesn't matter. I would like to try it and at least to care about some of these some of the other characters. I know, right? I mean, and actually, that's kind of the irony in a show that the show within the show prides itself on everybody getting some kind of attention because logos on outfits are a thing. Also, that should be kept a zillion miles away from Discovery, but I digress. (laughs) Um, For a show (laughs) that prides itself on that, you'd think the cast would be a bit more fleshed out. But no, this is the Tiger and Bunny show, and you will be reminded of that constantly. I mean, well, I kind of like that because reasons, but also, well, don't get me wrong. Kotetsu and Barnaby are fun together. But also, I'm gonna be real. There, there's other care. There are other, definitely other characters where I'm like, can we get a bit more focus here, just a little bit? Because I want, and I want through the other characters, it would be a great expansion of the world, and that honestly just plays well to me, just from a reviewing perspective. That's just me. Well, the show is called Tiger and Bunny, and Kotetsu and Barnaby take up most of the spotlight while the rest of the heroes get the shaft. There are some that are memorable. I like Keith Goodman, a.k.a. Sky High, as this dorky, goody-two-shoes sort of person. Ivan or Origami Cyclone gets some good spotlight episodes. And uh, I've got a whole spiel talking about my man Fire Emblem. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's what I was waiting for. Okay, yeah, so can we just say that Fire Emblem's actually kind of awesome? Oh, he's the best character in the whole show! He's one of those characters who doesn't get much in the way of screen time, but they maximize his minutes. Exactly. And he owns everything he's in. So let's get to the best part of the beginning, and that is, of course, the third act, where we actually get to see more hero TV in action, where... Kotetsu takes his daughter Kaede and her family to a Christmas-themed amusement park. I didn't know Holiday World expanded to Stern Build. (laughs) Sadly, they don't have a coaster as good as The Voyage, but nothing's ever perfect. By the way, the name of this theme park, it's called something like Tree World. I read it as Re-World. Oh, (laughs) jeez. And our heroes fight a villain who is modeled after viral YouTube sensation Roller Man. And on the Japanese side, he is played by Kape Yamaguchi. He is both Ranma in Ranma 1 Half and the voice of Inuyasha. He's L in Death Note, Teddy in Persona 4, and Daisaku in Giant Robo, among many other roles that he's had. And wow. to me, this whole episode is more of what the show should have been. It really does show the production side of Hero TV, and the heroes desperately trying to one-up one another, trying to catch this roller man, trying to figure out what his quirk is. 
holding back another smirk as he dropped another my hero academia reference yeah i was i, I didn't want to say anything about that either <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i love behind the scenes stuff especially um since i do remember back when we did the original show i i think i mentioned this i might be wrong but i really but seeing how hero t like seeing what makes hero tv tick would have been a really interesting uh facet to the original series and i'm actually surprised actually both happy and yet kind of surprised that they included it here yeah same, um, same. i agree with that it's yeah, it's kind of it almost it gave a feeling like buying a uh, a band's greatest hits album. Like I've well, I have the Z I have ZZ Top's greatest hits album from I think the early nineties, early mid nineties. It's got all the regular like imagine listening to all your favorite ZZ Top songs, right? You buy it just for that because you just want to throw it in the car. And then halfway through, you find out that they threw in two new songs, and they both are really good, to the point where you wonder, why are these debuting here, in what's supposed to be a clip show in music form? But they're good enough to be just good singles on their own, or even uh, lost out. Even, they could have been on those... Uh, original albums and this whole plot right here kind of make me go okay this is awesome but why didn't they chuck this into the main show i think it would have been a really fascinating element uh to the main plot yeah and i and i actually like the design of the uh, of the producer woman uh who runs the show for hero tv it always feels like that maybe that she should have been more of a character in her own right rather than, you know, just the producer. Agnes oh, Joubert. Oh, yeah, she was a fun character. I could definitely use more of Agnes Joubert. She should have gotten an episode all to herself. Just having to deal with the stress of being a television producer. I mentioned this in the previous episode. I don't think that she would have been as effective a character if it was a man being the producer. The fact that we get, like, the sleazy producer being a woman kind of adds a little extra spice to it. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, because thinking about it, there's just something a lot more commanding about a woman telling you what to do rather than some guy. I was gonna say that Sort of like in the, just like other similarities of point out in the Akua Maywar episode, go watch that audience. It's almost it's when it's always a guy, it just gets kind of flat after a while. But when you change it up and it's a woman, it adds a new dimension to an otherwise very predictable outcome. And honestly, and like I said in that very same episode, something that I, w I wish more writers would play around with the character dynamics more so anything that plays around with the dynamic that way a plus for me tiger and bunny is of course not breaking new ground taking episodes and compiling them the way it's structured reminds me of the second legend of the galactic heroes movie overture to a new war except rather than just being a compilation movie 
like 99% of that movie was all original footage just for it. And that movie takes the first two episodes of the OAV and expands upon them even further. Tiger and Bunny to me is just your standard compilation movie with a new episode tacked on at the end. It doesn't really break new ground, but it doesn't need to. And honestly, if you're going to watch this movie, I would say watch it in place of the first two episodes or watch the first two episodes and then watch the third act of the beginning. Probably a good recommendation, I'd say. Yeah, same. that's. I was gonna say that's my. That was my thoughts exactly. And with that, let's move on to the second movie, The Rising. So, Tiger and Bunny The Rising was released in 2014 by Studio Sunrise, that's two years after the beginning, and it shares the same director and the writer as the first movie, so no need to tread new ground there. Now, who wants to give the premise of The Rising? I could give that a shot, and uh, what we have here for The uh, for the Rising is, well, it starts off, uh, I would say, what, about maybe... Uh, a month or two after the conclusion of uh, uh, after the conclusion of the second season, where it turns out that the the company that uh, that both Barnaby and Kotetsu are working for, not exactly doing so well after the events of the series, they get bought up by a new company, and while Barnaby gets promoted back up uh, to the big leagues, effectively Kotetsu is uh, effectively Kotetsu is let go, and we also get this uh, this new character. With, uh, with gravity powers, Golden Ryan. And as I said on the pre-stream, because Tim and I are sports fans, we are going to have a field day with Golden Ryan's name. Um, after that, it's then, uh, it then pivots to, pivots to this uh, kind of, um, I guess, this prophecy, and it seems like the, you've got a handful of these villain characters that are attempting to, uh, to uh, make it come to pass. I mean, not to go not to go too deep into it. It turns out that it's not necessarily. Let's just say again. I mean, big surprise. A superhero film. A superhero film. Not everything is as it seems. I'm shocked. Shocked, I say. Uh, but you know, you, you get the typical intrigue and everything that you got from Tiger and Bunny, especially uh, especially season two, Tiger and Bunny. It definitely feels like a really solid continuation of the series. I'd say that's a pretty good summation. And I'm just going to be upfront, this is the best piece of Tiger and Bunny media. To me, it captures what the TV series should have been. Dealing with the everyday lives of these superheroes and their struggles outside the battlefield. The superheroing is fun, but to me, it's seeing these superheroes as people as humble human beings take away their powers and what do you have basically a person uh, a a series that 
that uh, handles the the person behind the mask. And if I may be if I may be so bold, a lot of the best superhero media that's out there make sure that you care about the person behind the mask rather than just the person ju- rather just when the mask is on. That's what I was gonna say. Um, that's a good ingredient. One makes movies like Spider Verse. Some of my favorite superhero media is uh, what goes on behind the scenes, and not just when it's heroes and villains. Also, I was gonna point something else out. The plot of this movie, like at least the middle part with Kotetsu getting replaced. Actually, I saw a little bit of similarities in there to a lot of racing movies like Cars and Days of Thunder. Well, Days of Thunder are going to try to dance around spoilers, but if you but the part of the plot of Cars Three is like a lot of what it talks about is what happens when when you get old, you you start to age, and a lot of the politics that go on behind the scenes of professional what it means to be a professional athlete and in the rising especially with the way things go down in the board in the boardroom between schneider and kotetsu it kind it definitely hits similar ground and also but it's, it's fascinating to me this just the behind the scenes politics of oh main character gets forced out not because he did anything wrong but it's because surprise surprise questionable as all get out powers that be decide to flex their political muscle which is something that happens quite a bit in the real world in in real sports like like Nate brought up earlier I I mean you look at you look at uh <laughs> And you think about that, you think about that uh, whole, just to say it, you, th- you think about, you know, all the politics. I mean, think about what it was like last year uh, in Formula One when that McLaren seat uh, came open. Oh, my God, that. I was trying not to use that, but oh, my God, that. It's the easiest one that I can remember offhand because <laughs> that was a mess. What producer Schneider does to Kotetsu is pretty scummy, but to be fair... To be fair. To be fair. Uh, to be fair. To be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Kotetsu kind of had it coming because at the end of Tiger and Buddy, his hundred power was starting to wear down. Like he could no longer sustain it for the three minute maximum. It now only lasts him a minute. And he kind of takes it in a dignified manner, understanding that he's kind of yesterday's news. He's been at the bottom of the pyramid of Hero TV for so long. It's his time to pass the baton to somebody younger. This newcomer, Ryan Goldsmith, who, I just want to say, Ryan Goldsmith's a JoJo character. He really is. (laughs) Bloody wellies. He absolutely is. He looks like bloody Dio. <laughs> now I can't unsee that now. Crikey Lee Moses. I mean, I mean, the only thing that he's missing is just the is just the ability to stop time. I mean, his superpower where he can generate a gravity field around others—that sounds like it's the power of a stand. 
That's I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that is a stand in the JoJo's universe. I'm trying it to is. remember. I'm it trying is. to remember which part, though. I can't. I can't place it. <laughs> I know. I know what it is. It's part six, and it's Sea Moon. Okay. <laughs> That's it. That's what I thought. I was going to ask, though, if Golden Ryan Fitzpatrick had a stand, <laughs> what would his stand be called? Trying really hard not to say Freebird. I'm trying really hard. Somebody prevent me from saying that. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> no, sometimes the, sometimes the simplest answer is the best one. Uh, either, uh, either Freebird or I don't know, maybe. Uh, uh, I was gonna say the ecstasy I'm of gold. Freebird. <laughs> what, what what were you gonna say, Nate? The ecstasy of gold. That's a good one too. <laughs> that's pretty good. It also sounds like a Prince song, so that's fine. <laughs> I have to say, I do like Golden Ryan Callahan as as a character, though. He, uh, cocky son, the cocky son of a gun himself. Yeah, I mean he he is actually pretty entertaining, all told. He plays off of Barnaby nicely. Kotetsu was the perfect partner for Barnaby. As this grizzled veteran, I know everything that he doesn't, I'm better than him, so forth. Golden Ryan Tannehill is a great counterweight to Barnaby, because he doesn't take things seriously. He's cocky, smug, and arrogant. He doesn't feel like he acts that he's better than Barnaby, but he's a much more loose persona than Barnaby, who's a lot more uptight. A lot more of a looser cannon, as we see in his, um, in his first time out as well. If Kotetsu's a loose cannon, this guy's a bloody long tom. Oof. He definitely is a um, a stark opposite to Barnaby, but I would say more so like how Barnaby currently is. Much like how Kotetsu is like, he plays how he originally played off of Barnaby in the very beginning of the show, for example. I, I could see that. I was kind of thinking the same thing, that sort of like, you know, Barnaby's kind of looking looking at him and he's saying like, Man, did I really act like this when when I first started? Yeah, cause cause you remember how Barnaby was like, I wouldn't necessarily say that he didn't cared about being. He definitely didn't care about being a superhero, but he played. He cared about being a superhero very differently compared to Kotetsu, where he didn't really take it nearly seriously as he as Kotetsu used to. Whereas currently now he does, and. It, and that's the way that Gold Ryan acts, you know, douchey, cocky self. It just rubs Barnaby the wrong way. Yeah, you all pretty much hit the nail on the head. Because all I was gonna, all, all I can really add to that is it's amusing how Barnaby used to be so pop rock, but now he's finally grown up to be more classic rock. And then Golden Ryan Blaney here, full on <laughs> pop rock. Oh, that was good. That was good. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Oh, Brian's now as pop rock as Simple Plan. Oof. Oof. <laughs> if Barnaby was a mirror for Kotetsu, then Golden Andrew Ryan is a mirror for Barnaby. 
Barnaby is supposed to be the mirror for what Kotetsu should be. Golden Matt Ryan is the mirror for what Barnaby used to be. Golden Ice. <laughs> nice. I, I, I mean, just just thinking about that, yeah, I mean, he is he is absolutely just ki- kind of just a... He's fun to watch. You, you, you kind of roll your eyes initially, but then you're also kind of like, okay, big guy, what do you what do you got for us this time? As I said, he's got that JoJo energy to him. I half expect him to tell Barnaby what that he knows what his next line is going to be. <laughs> Dude, that would have been perfect. I'm pretty yeah. sure Joestar would sue. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that or I would see, or either that or I would see Golden Ryan Kerrigan decide to pull out the HBK celebration. Kotetsu is sidelined, but I like how he's portrayed in this movie. There's debate as to whether or not older heroes should be pathetic or weak, but in this case of Kotetsu, it's the next logical step for his character. He's pretty much facing down the barrel of retirement. He's not the man that he once was. So, the movie has a justification to sideline him this time around. And it's not like the movie just sidelines him and then forgets to put him back into the game. Kotetsu is there working behind the scenes, trying to get to the bottom of the mystery behind Mark Schneider and, uh, you know, the villains in the film. And the villains in this film, I should add, are great. I, I wish that we, uh, that we could have had a little bit uh, more of them, because... Great designs, great powers, and great voice work. Feels like that maybe just a slight bit undercooked, but overall still, yes, very strong, uh, very strong uh, three villain unit. Great powers, too. That's another knock I kind of had against Tiger and Bunny is that it doesn't really have a central antagonist or a rogues gallery. And the rogues gallery it does have gets dealt with very quickly. I really wish we would see more of these three together because they are great. You got one guy that basically uses his voice as a weapon, and of course he's voiced by Matt Mercer. <laughs> <laughs> the JoJo reference yes. is just coming. <laughs> yes, more JoJo references. <laughs> there's a few, there's a few other American one can probably find. You also have the uh, the the uh, female villain voiced by uh, Christina V. Oh, I'll uh, get to her. I'll oh. get to her. Okay, backing up, backing up. Kasha Graham is her name, the gypsy woman. Not to sound perverted or anything, but she is fine. In more ways than one. Don't get me wrong, but she is. She she just has a great design, and I love it. Tops. Sorry, Nate said gypsy, and I'm like, no. Fleetwood Mac, fine. Fleetwood Mac. Considering that her ability is to make multiples of herself, Go Your Own Way would be a great name for her stand. <laughs> yes! <laughs> for that. But, of course, we've talked about him earlier. The best part of this whole movie, we get some great character development for our man, Fire Emblem. Yes! Fire the Emblem. Bestest boy. Fire Emblem, Mm -hmm. to me, is the glue that holds the show together. Agreed. The heroes are all interesting in their own ways, with the exception of Dragon Kid, because she's the most there of them all. But 
If you take out Fire Emblem, the whole unit just feels incohesive. Fire Emblem just makes the whole show complete. Yeah, I agree fully with that. Not only is Fire Emblem just really funny and entertaining, I also really like that he's like the older brother figure to most of the superheroes. Especially to uh, Karina and Dragon Kid, uh, no less. I, I think that that's a, that's a real underrated uh, part of him. At his core, Fire Emblem is a gay stereotype. But his homosexuality does not define his character. If you take that away, you still have this lovable goofball of a character who brings levity to our team in their darkest hours. He is a gay stereotype, but... He's a gay stereotype done really, really well. And especially, you know, we see a little bit of his, especially seeing a little bit of his insecurities uh, in this in this movie. If I could compare him to another anime character, the closest comparison I can think of is Hana from Tokyo Godfathers. Oh, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hana is a transvestite, and they're also a gay stereotype. But they're more than just the token gay character. Hana has a character arc. They have insecurities. You see their flaws throughout the movie. And by the end, Hana is your favorite character because of all they do for the plot and the rest of the cast. For sure. And Fire Emblem spends most of the movie out incapacitated, but like Kotetsu, they don't sideline him unceremoniously. His whole character arc in this is him dealing with his own insecurities about being a gay man. How he it's a re- And it's a really well done uh, uh, set of flashbacks as well. And most importantly, the, conclu- uh, the conclusion that Fire Emblem comes to is really beautiful and touching. It is. It's uplifting Indeed. and empowering. Yeah it's, yeah, it's really uplifting and it's a really... It's a. It has a really good positive message that a lot of people should should try and understand. And let's not forget the best thing about Fire Emblem in this movie. He has one of the best dub lines I have ever heard. This is <laughs> up there with the likes of "Who wants chicken nuggets?" and "You ask me, she's one OVA short of a series." As well as, is she going to make me ride the love salami? (laughs) There is a scene where Fire Emblem is chasing after the villains, and he says, I am so sick of getting dicked around. If I had it my way, I'd rather be doing the dicking. Huh? Why that... Way to sum up, Dan. That should have been a certified con classic line. No kidding. (laughs) I have to tip my hat to John Eric Bentley for the standout performance in this dub. You can tell that he was having so much fun voicing Fire Emblem. And that's to say nothing of the rest of the cast in this. Everybody from the TV series returns to reprise their roles. And it's great to hear Darren Norris in an anime dub. Especially when he's doing double duty. Absolutely. Uh, 
It's hard. It's hard to call him underappreciated, but it's always fun when he shows up. I was gonna say that when Darren Norris shows up, it's always a party. I should also point out the voice actor for Golden Ryan in this, Henry Dittman. He's not an anime voice actor by trade. His only other notable anime role is playing Kabuto in Naruto, the guy with his ninja info cards. He's, I discovered, I actually just discovered that he's more of, he's actually more of a host guy, like a, ho a TV show host these days, which is honestly pretty wild. <laughs> it just, it's honestly pretty wild that um they were able to get him. So, hats off on the studio. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, he had fun voicing Ryan and it shows. And that's not to say nothing of the Japanese cast. And I'm not going to go over the main cast like I did last time. So let's go over the ones who are exclusive to this movie, or rather introduced in this movie. Golden Ryan Zimmerman is played by Yuichi Nakamura, who was previously on this show as the only good character in this anime, well, before he was turned evil, Gai Tsutsugami in Guilty Crown. You can also hear him as Tetsuro Kuro in Haikyuu, Alto Saotome in Macross Frontier, Io Fleming in Gundam Thunderbolt, and, rather timely this one, Satoru Gojo in Jujutsu Kaisen. And it's fitting that I compare Golden Ryan to a Jojo character, because Yuichi Nakamura is the voice of Bruno in Golden Wind. Yep. <laughs> yes, brilliant. Gold Ryan is also the best mom in Jojo. Yes. <laughs> Mark Schneider, the shady producer who, I should point out, is one letter away from being Dark Schneider. <laughs> All right. And uh, and another letter away from being Dark Snyder, as in maybe dark as in maybe Dark Dan Snyder. <laughs> no, no, no. That joke don't work. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You beat me to the damn Ryan Zimmerman one, so I had to I had to squeeze something in there. Ha ha ha! You snooze, you lose! <laughs> yeah, I got no one to blame but myself for that one. <laughs> anyway, Mark Schneider is voiced by Hochu Otsuka. You will know him as Hans von Zetur in Saga of Tanya the Evil. He is Jiraiya in Naruto, Chibity Crockett in G Gundam, Yazan Gable in Zeta Gundam, Lieutenant Surumi in Golden Kamui, and Sato in the Ajin series. He plays Koji Tanaka alongside Hochu Otsuka in the Ajin series. He is Cornelius Kaka in Gundam Thunderbolt. He's Momotaro in Hozuki's Cool-Headedness. Rei Ryugazaki in Free. Enmu in Demon Slayer. And Kakyoin in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stardust Crusaders. <laughs> Wonderful. Holy crap, we are I... just rolling in JoJo's tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, it is without compare. <laughs> now on to the villains, and this is where I really get excited. Mugihito plays Johnny Wong. He is Valberg Baigan in Mashal, Rom in ReZero, Sigma in the Mega Man X games, Kaseki in Dr. Stone, Keel Lawrence in Evangelion. 
Rikia Koyama plays Richard Max. He is Kuritsugu Emiya in the Fate series, Mamoru Takamura in Hajime no Ippo, Shinigami in Soul Eater, Kogoro in Detective Conan, Klaus von Reinhertz in Blood Blockade Battlefront, and Saijima in the Yakuza games. And now we come to Kasha Graham. And once again, I have to bring this show up again. In the past few episodes, we have had Yuki Aoi, we have had Ayahi Takakagi, and finally, the main trinity of Symphogear is complete on this show. <laughs> because Kasha Graham is voiced by Nana Mizuki, who plays Subasa in Symphogear. The queen herself. When I saw that Kasha was voiced by Nana Mizuki, because I watched the show dubbed and not subbed, my eyes popped again. Like, I did not expect to talk about Symphogear yet again, but here we are. Of course, the role that Street made her continues. big... The role that made her big was Fate Testarossa in Magical Girl Lyrical Nanoha and Hinata in Naruto. You can also hear her as Anne in Persona 5, Lan Fan in Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, Mocha in Rosario Vampire, and Colette in Tales of Symphonia. And I'm just cutting in here to say that I forgot to mention this, but Mugihito is also in Symphogear. He plays Subasa's grandfather, Fudo. And, oh boy, if you know the dynamic between those two characters, huh... Them teaming up in this movie is, um, a little awkward. I love how the Simple Gear trend just, the ch that train just keeps on rolling. It's the NNW 611 of the Otaku Nate Show. Hey, have you guys watched Simple Gear yet? Because you guys need to watch Simple Gear. <laughs> in the first season. Although I really need to get back on the season two now that I say this. Yeah, I'm trying to simpho pill as many people as possible. I might ch I might check that out at some point. I still have kind of a backlog I need to work through that just keeps getting larger. <laughs> well, move it up uh, a little. Yeah, why same don't you? here. Anyway. I might just have to get back into the habit of cross watching shows. Anyway, because I can't stop talking about simpho gear, I do want to get back to the plot though by saying that there's one thing that I don't like. And this is true of several other anime series, even ones that I like. I don't like this whole what is happening in the children's book is happening in the actual story plot lines. It's predictable, it is cliched, and I don't like it. I mean you can have it where you can have it where it does work, but I can absolutely I can understand uh, not not uh, not enjoying that. I was gonna say, isn't that kind of a horror thing? Not necessarily. I know it best from watching uh, horror media, so in a story like this, I definitely see where Nate's coming from. It feels off. A little bit off. Just a little. The one that I kind of remember it coming from was, um, well, maybe not necessarily how it happened, maybe not necessarily as it's going on, but kind of reminds me a little bit of Power Rangers Wild Force, at least if you've seen, like, if you haven't seen the series itself, if maybe you've seen, like, 
Linkara's History of Power Rangers episode about that. He kind of said he kind of uh, says the exact same has the exact same hang up about that. I think one time where it worked, where it didn't feel forced, was in Death Parade, where the children's book is used more as an aesthetic or a piece of symbolism rather than an exposition device. Because the children's book does play a little bit into a character, but not in the way you would expect. It's not where the storybook is their life story, it's just there's a reason why that book means something to them. Yeah, I can see that. And not in a, they're just like me kind of way. Outside of that, though, I would say that Tiger and Bunny The Rising is a solid little movie. But on that same merit, though, it's not one that I would say, hey, go out and watch it. Because you need the context of the TV series in order to enjoy it. I would agree fully with that. Like, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I get the feeling that if I hadn't already watched... Uh, the Tiger and Bunny series, I would be lost at this moment. I was going to say, don't watch this unless you've already shotgunned the entire show. <laughs> because otherwise, you're going to, you'll be lost and you'll be done five minutes within, within five minutes, possibly less. Because, as, as we mentioned earlier, there's so, there's a lot of changes from the original show that get made in the movie that. God help anybody going into this thing cold. And it's not like you can go right from the beginning to the rising either. Because, like, at the end of the beginning, like, it, it it just segues into the fourth TV episode. And if you go from the beginning to the rising, you're going to be like, what did I miss? It's almost, as if, it's almost as if, like, you're watching, I won't say a completely different series, but it's different enough that it's just like, whoa, hey, you can't really get your footing so to speak. It's like watching season one of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and then jumping right to season six. Or more so, it feels like it'll only matter to you if you've actually seen the TV show. I was going to say, it'd be like watching Doctor Who backwards, except apparently you can do that, because I did it once. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I would love to hear all about that experience, Justin. I didn't even know you could watch Doctor Who backwards. And uh, on that bombshell, do we have anything more that we can add about Tiger and Bunny the Rising, which I think we can all agree is the best thing that's come out of this franchise? I can agree yeah. with that. Yeah, this movie oh, is yeah, just, definitely. It's really, really good. In the context of the series, I would say, yeah, Tiger and Bunny is really good, but again, it is unfortunately inaccessible to any newcomers. And the TV series itself is fine, but the Rising to me, is a better embodiment of what Tiger and Bunny should have been. Yeah. Superheroes sort of can... dealing with their own mortality. That feels like that it's a that it's a, a, a good way to put it. Yeah, I can't really... There's nothing I could really add on to that in a meaningful degree. That is essentially how I would put it. It's worth watching as well for Fire Emblem's character arc to hear the voice of Nana Mizuki... And, of course, for Golden Ryan O'Reilly. <laughs> well played. But Nice. Took me a second, because I tried to come up with more of those, but yeah, I got that one. You should be promoting auto parts. Golden yeah, either that or go watch uh, Golden Ryan Clark uh, 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 play some defense. 
or watch highlights of the golden arm of, or go and watch some highlights of the golden arm of Nolan Ryan. And there's and there's the trump card. Yeah. Cue the explosion sound effect. I also had Golden Ryan Leaf and Golden Ryan Gosling on here. I I wasn't going to be the one to bring up Ryan Golden Ryan Leaf. I wasn't I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I was almost going to say I think we're I out of room to say, run with the you, Golden was Ryan. Was any of you going to say Ryan Reynolds yet? <laughs> oh, you was... got it, Justin. You got it before we did. There well, we go. Well played. Well played, sir. Oh, this show's gone off the rails. This I honestly think that this is the most fun I've had recording an episode, and I kind of needed this because I'm kind of going in the middle of a funk. Well, you're also going into the con crunch, so that's probably part of it. <laughs> and I think that kind of segues our final thoughts. Um, yeah, Tiger and Bunny, the movies, are good, but again, you kind of need to watch the TV series first to truly enjoy them. You won't like them if you view them casually. Go through the TV series first, then watch them. They're still fun, but not something I'd recommend for a casual fan. And it really is yeah. kind of a shame that Tiger and Bunny ended up not being the runaway hit and well-remembered anime we hoped it was. But for its time, I think it was a good show, but it's since been surpassed by its competition. And as we stated in the last episode, its competition is, of course, My Hero Academia, One Punch Man, and the all-time classic, Don't Meddle With My Daughter. <laughs> yeah, for some of you cultured individuals out there, that is. I am indeed cultured. But that is going <laughs> to do it for this episode. And before we move on to the final sign-off, I just want to say that I am going to be at Otakon at the end of the month, and I will be hosting four panels. I've talked about this show earlier, but I am going to be doing a Symphogear panel entitled Listen to My Song, an Introduction to Symphogear. I am also going to be doing a panel on the works of Satoshi Kon. Satoshi Kon, The Man, His Method, and Madness. I am doing a panel on the films of Yoshiaki Kawajiri. And last but not least, I'm doing a panel about anime censorship in Japan. And don't worry, this isn't going to be one of those panels. This is just going to be an entertaining look about the wild and fun ways that anime is censored on broadcast television in Japan. For reasons that are both serious and dubious. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, you, br you bring up doing the films of Satoshi Kon. If anyone has a Shutter subscription, uh... Perfect Blue was actually featured on uh, the last drive-in uh, this past week. And it's fitting because Junko Iwao, who played Mima in that movie, is going to be a guest there. Oh, that's going to be cool. Yeah, o Otakon has really hit it out of the park with its guest list this year. I mean, they got the producer yeah. Super Robot. I wish I was coming for all three you, uh, days instead of just one. Yeah, I'm going to be there all three days. I have to be there all three days. I'm a panelist. Anyway. Yeah, I'll be down there. I'll be down there, too, pretty much just uh, wandering around on the con floor. So if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like, subscribe, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. Be sure to follow us on social media at Otaku Nate Show on Facebook and Twitter and Natendo We on Instagram where I posted some photos from a one-day convention I attended this week, including a photo with me and one Jamie Markey. Very cool. 
Yes, and Jim Cummings, too. Oh, even better. Oh, that's even better. Oh, wow. So next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we go from superheroes saving the world all the way out into a faraway planet from outer space. The 2000s, to me, are a galaxy of shows that have been overlooked and fallen by the wayside, and we are hopefully going to find one of those hidden gems, because we are going to review Bones' adaptation of a shoujo sci-fi series, Ju-Osei, Planet of the Beast Kings. I am going into this one blind. I have heard good things. I hope it lives up to expectation. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. I be William, and I be bye. Justin, see you all at Otakon. And this is Tim the Otaku Jock, much of the same. Otakon, Otakon dead ahead. Let's go ahead and have ourselves some fun at the end of the month. And we are once again signing off and saying, Tiger and Barnaby, over and out. <laughs>